folks, and welcome back to the Elsewhere Podcast. My name's Ian Ditchburn, and I hope that wherever you're listening to us from, life has slowly reverted back to the way that it was previously. Of course, we can never go back. You can never truly go back to the way things were. And life does feel just irreparably changed. So I hope on a personal level that some of those changes have been for the better. Today's guest, my good friend Amir, has been going through quite a lot of changes in his life, leaving Iran at 15 years old on a journey that it would take him through Iraq, imprisoned in Malaysia, and at the mercy of smugglers in Indonesia. So if you've ever been curious about the backstories of one of those people you've seen in the news crammed 200 deep on a tiny boat seeking asylum, Amir was one of those people. We're going to play you in today with a very special song off a very special album. It's called Music from Saharan Cell Phones, which is a compilation of music collected from the memory cards of cell phones in the Sahara Desert. Now, most of the people who actively live in the Sahara are nomadic peoples, predominantly the Tuareg, and instead of personal computers, the cell phone is the go-to multimedia device which they use to exchange files. And so a lot of this music, before being featured on this album, had never been uploaded to the internet before. And this is track number one off Music from Saharan Cell Phones. It's called Group Amnitaf by Tanarawen. Oh, 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 oh. 
it's a cold Saturday afternoon. We're sitting in our East Van studio. I've hung blankets, uh, so you know it's official. And I'm sitting here with my friend Amir. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. I feel very privileged and honored right now. I can't explain how much. Thank you. Yeah. Well, no, from the moment I met you, I, I, I realized that you had a pretty, a pretty amazing story that you could share, which I'll have, I'll have covered the kind of broad strokes in the introduction. We'll go through it sort of beat by beat. But you're from Iran originally. Is that right? I was born in Iran. Persian background. I came here 2017, October 31st. My favorite day, Halloween. They told me, sorry about the firecrackers and the sound. We apologize. So ultimate Canadian of them saying <laughs> sorry and apologies right off the bat meeting mm -hmm. me. And I said, no one have to be sorry about what? They're like, yeah, it's Halloween. So they do firecrackers. They're like, what? Is it Halloween? And I arrived here. I put that on my Facebook. It was around 2012. And I said, I would love to be in Canada one day Halloween. Halloween probably isn't super big in Iran. Apparently it's becoming, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say it's becoming a big thing, but people are. I know Christmas is becoming a very big thing recently, which is very surprisingly. And the reason is because the Christian population in Iran is like maybe 2% of the population. Basically, Christians in Iran are the Armenians who fled many years ago and they came to Iran. So they are the only people who are pretty much allowed or legally can be Christians. They have their... Um, holidays and they do enjoy the persian holidays as well so they they are kind of a devil dipping in there hey why not more feasts exactly so during those days uh, the iranian uh, national television does um broadcast some christian movies and whatnot i really like it I, I really liked it. And for example, Home Alone was my number one favorite during uh, during Christmas time. I felt so connected to that movie. I loved it. And I would spend pretty much my whole day and night watching all those movies. And I had to be dragged off of the TV by my by my parents. Yeah. So do you think it's, it's, it's stuff like that? And as we'll sort of uncover as we're going, your, your story is one of a, a person on the move. Do you remember like the first time when you, you realized that you wanted to leave? Speaking of movies and television, I have to admit that media definitely does have impact. But I do remember probably at the age of around... 11 maybe 12 I planted the seed in my brain to I just want to go outside of my circle and I would like to explore what else is out there so would you say it was more of a desire to satisfy your curiosity like were you drawn out or were you driven out by the way that the country was being run that's a very good question and I don't think 
anyone has ever asked me that that accurate about if I was driven or if I was drowned. Like right now, you're you're activating some of the most uh, rusty, dusty memories and wires in my brain that are just like crackling in there with electricity. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a very great sign of an like a very amazing interviewer. Question one. Question one. Um, let's 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 go back to driven or drowned i am curious about the outside world and i i have these random spontaneous chats with myself every now and then i sit down and i analyze things and i have a conversation with myself one of them was hey amir there are well over 180 countries and you have only lived in one of them for about 12, 13 years now. And I have this instinct at the back of my mind that if you want to learn or experience the fact and the actual things that are happening in a country, you need to spend at least a year or two in a country, if not five or ten. And I can only live so much. And I have 180 other countries to discover. And I've pretty much wasted 12, 13, 14, 15 years already in one. I am already behind. I need to get out. So you're having these thoughts at 15 years old. I am having these thoughts at 11, 12 years old. These are the seeds that, is, that are being planted in my brain. I find that really interesting that you still had that curiosity about the outside world because I'm I'm curious about what the Iranian culture regime portrays the outside world to be because obviously it's a very, very specific place in the world that has very specific sort of embargoes and relationships with other countries. How do how do they portray other parts of the world? I I don't know if I can clearly demonstrate or explain how they how they uh, paint the picture of the outside world. But one thing I can say is Iranian passport is probably the worst passport on this planet. So the only countries that I can remember at the time of me wanting to leave available to me with an on-arrival visa was Malaysia and maybe Turkey, some African countries that we had the privilege of an arrival visa for it because the president of the time donated or spent billions of dollars in those countries for their own agenda or whatsoever. But what's your goal to end up in one of those countries? Because what I'm wondering about is there's obviously a very sort of polarized view in in Iran and about Iran with you were talking about home alone in New York and all that sort of stuff like I find it amazing that you still manage to cultivate a desire to go check out these places despite the fact that there must have been a lot of pressure because Iran is kind of very isolationist country how did you generate these aspirations to leave? I'd think that culturally everything would be pulling you in the opposite direction. 
spending time with my dad and his buddies, I learned this concept of the more that you hide it from people, the more likely is that people want to access that information. You want what you can't have, right? Going back to that concept, because the entire regime and the entire country, not the people itself necessarily, but the regime and the system being played in a way that they want to hide this from the outside world and not not wanting to let you know what's going on out there that probably had the biggest effect on me of wanting to discover more and wanting to know about it more whereas if i if i was a kid that was born in south korea i would have probably stayed in south korea for the rest of my life and i would have never maybe never spoke english maybe would have had zero probably zero clue about um, the whole Western society because it was just a, you know, arm's reach for me to get a passport, hop on a plane, visit New York whenever I wanted to. But because it was something that was labeled literally impossible, I wanted to say, I don't think so. I can do that. I was born and I live in a country that West was impossible, labeled impossible to get there. And I said, you know what? Challenge accepted. What did your family think of these aspirations? My family, were, they didn't really have a big, they didn't even have a problem with that. Their only problem was, when is he planning to do that? And... I remember, because in Iran, you have to serve the military. And also, this is another aspect. The government has made it hard for people as well. It's not only the Western society. Like you can't really leave the country. Most families, like I mean, in Iran, is very, very crucial to let your underage kid travel by himself. And then when you do reach the age of maturity, which is so-called 18 or 19 or whatever, you cannot leave the country because you have to serve the military. If you do not serve the military, you're not allowed to go and register for a driver's license. You cannot obtain a passport. If you haven't served the military, you cannot leave the country. So I only had a very short period and a very small window for me to get out of the country. From when you were born until the age of uh, 17 and a half there is a period that you can obtain a passport and leave the country because they know you will 99% of people come back or they're going with their parents um, whether they have been discharged somehow from the military or they're going for a vacation or whatever but once you turn once you pass 17 and a half or 18 that's when you can't uh, obtain a passport anymore before you join the military and there are some parts of the military that when you join, you are you are banned from leaving the country for five years after your discharge. So how did you figure out how to how to get out without joining the military? It, it was a very long process. And at the time, you can't really find anything on the Internet. Basically, you are hearing things from the grapevine and you're pretty much getting all your information from here and there. 
rumors rumors of people who have left. exactly people who have left people who know a little bit of information who are in the police or military so i went to this police station it's it's another section of the police station that's where you go and apply for a passport and all the forms and everything you have to go there and get it in person you have to fill up physical forms and um, also you need to uh you need to go and get your parents to sign these forms for you if you're underage. So I went there, did my little bit of research, and they're not really most of them willing to give you that information, whereas it's a public information and you should have access to. But still, there is this secrecy and hidden um, culture in there that they don't, the lesser the people they know about it, the better kind of thing. But I obtained the forms and I read on the form that you can only apply before the age of 17 and a half, around 18. And I was like, great. I am 15 years now, 15 years old now. And I, I got the forms. I got the forms, brought it home. My parents are not happy about it. My dad's like, I'm, I'm, there is no way I'm signing these forms. So that's how it all begins. With a no. With a no. So often from parents. That's so how often it from the parents. Well, then how did you end up uh, getting around that big challenge? Well, I, my dad had a friend, um, very great friend of his. We pretty much consider him as a family member. And um, he loves tea. Uh, he loves his tea dark and thick. Did you bribe him with tea? Yeah, always. Uh, my, my mom would have the kettle boiling for the whole day every time he made a visit to our house and uh, he was very pro me leaving even at the young age he had lots of friends overseas and he had seen their success migration uh, forces you to get you out of your comfort zone and reach for potentials that not many people even see them set aside wanting to go for it so he had experienced this. He had friends who have taken the challenge and pretty much 99.9% .9 of them were successful. And he wanted the same thing for me. He would always say, tell my mom, I would eavesdrop that he's like, he's a, he's a great, intelligent, reliable person. And sometimes I wouldn't even have the capacity to understand what he means I knew what the word smart, intelligent, and reliable is or what the meaning is, but I didn't know what he meant by those. He was always pro that despite him being the best friend of my dad and my dad being 100% opposed of me leaving by myself, especially at the age of 15. Still, my dad wouldn't, wouldn't sign the papers to let me give me a consent for a passport. At the time... My uh, grandmother wanted to go for a pilgrimage uh, visit to Iraq. And she said, I would like to have a man with me as an escort. So that was when I was like, oh, wow, I can, I need a passport to do that. So I can convince my father to get me a passport right there. He got it. That's like two birds with one stone at that point my dad couldn't say no because the travel was booked we had paid for everything it was just a couple of weeks before I felt 
the depth of the disaster about Iraq when I got there. I had heard things about Iraq. I had seen things on the TV. But being there and seeing this war torn and seeing what this country had turned into was very different from what you saw in TVs. Um, heavy American military personnel uh, presence, uh, Iraqi military, and uh, they have these devices that they will come around our um, all the luggage and everything that we carry to make sure there is no bombs in there. And every time we wanted to pass a certain area, there will be security checks. They'll go around the buses with their uh, devices to make sure there are no bombs in there. We are 24-7 uh, under the risk of explosion. Anytime, anywhere, terrorism and suicidal attacks and suicide bomb attacks is just like, it's just a matter of time before it happens. How was your treatment by the American military? Because there was this whole narrative during that time of we're over there, we're winning the hearts and minds of the people and defeating Saddam. And, you know, you, you always got to kind of wonder how much of that is actually true. And what kind of vibe did you get from the GIs over there when you when you encountered them? They were just there like security guards, mostly. Um, I was actually taken to an interview room that was handled by Americans at the Iraqi border. It felt very strange to me because we are in Middle East, we are in Iraq, and we are supposed to be screened or checked by the Iraqi officials. It happened by American people. They handpicked some of us, and I was amongst. They said they mostly do it to younger folks. They took me to this interview room, and they took fingerprints from everyone except myself. They didn't take any fingerprints from me, and they didn't even interview me. They let me sit there for about 15, 20 minutes or so, and I was... A lot of people may actually think I was nervous and I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? I was very excited. I was very happy and I was practicing those four or five English words that I knew in my brain to use them. <laughs> I was a bit disappointed that I didn't even get a chance to use any of those. I thought I'm going to have an English practice in there. but What words did you know at that time? <laughs> at the time, I probably knew hello, and I knew how are you, thank you, and goodbye. All you need, really. <laughs> when you're talking to the police, I think that's, what the, that's about the only words they recommend you say to the police during a traffic stop, if you can get away with it. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but nothing happened. I sat there for 15, 20 minutes and they let me go. And then we were on our way towards Iraq. Uh, we spent there for about, yeah, as I mentioned, about a week or so. My grandma was very happy about it. And she said, I did a great job. I met a lot of people. I learned a lot of Arabic. I practiced Arabic and I had good conversations with people. Most people were very... Uh, neutral about the feeling i would say um, they were very unfortunately uneducated about what the whole thing is and what is happening 
and they they didn't know what's going on but the country was bad it was a war torn and i i couldn't understand why this such thing should happen and um, our journey ended and uh, we came back home and my friends are like why are you back some of my friends are like why are you back you're stupid you made it to iraq and you came back i'm like what are you talking about it's like if it was me i would have already been gone from there i'm like i wouldn't leave my grandma behind yeah you had a duty you i were, had a duty you were an escort i was an escort not the escort that you think about, <laughs> but the escort that we think about. That's good. <laughs> so I couldn't leave my grandma behind, but I said, I didn't say anything to my buddies or friends. I'm like, you know. Kids like to talk shit. Kids like well. to talk shit. Oh, yeah, I totally would have done it differently. Uh, oh, you're, yeah. You're an idiot. <laughs> I'm like, only have, yeah, sure. Yeah. I am an idiot. 14-year-olds are the same all over the country. All They're over, full of shit. All, all, over, all over the planet. <laughs> all over the planet. All over right. the planet. I would have to admit that Persian 14 years old different with Canadian 14 years old. Okay, let's dive in. What, what, Except that so? we all have this Mario game in common. We all play Mario. Yes. All over the planet. Uh, four, 14 years old, mostly all over the place, the same. So you're back. You're so 14. Back, 14. You still want to go. Still want to go. My buddies are like, oh, you piece of loser shit. You couldn't make it. If I were you there, I would have already been gone. I'm like. I would have had six girlfriends. Six, six <laughs> girlfriends. And, would and have they, would had, have, they would have carried me to Canada joined themselves. Joined the American military right off the bat in Iraq. And I'm like. Yeah, great. Some of them... Tough talk. Yeah, tough talk. Uh, some of them were saying shit like that. Uh, it was interesting. The whole concept is very different with what people think in the West, uh, what Persians or Iranians think about Americans or what they perceive Americans as in the media as it is what it is in Iran. It's very different. Um, I've seen a lot of Americans very surprised about it when they find out about the reality but that's another topic yeah friends are saying yeah you loser whatever i'm like sure but i'm not revealing my my plan what my plan is well this is a pretty clandestine operation you're running you're not just gonna tell fucking nathan the ninth grader <laughs> about your plan to, exactly. to leave the country exactly you know? so I'm, smart so i'm like sure as a as a 13 14 year old i'm like yeah sure Fast forward, we arrived. First thing my dad tells me is, where is your passport? He wanted to yank that thing out of your little pocket, didn't he? He wanted to yank that off of my pocket so bad. Yeah. And I knew about it. So I had hit the passport somewhere that if he's going to strip me, he's not going to find it because I know him. It's not about him winning a conversation or anything. He's winning his son. He doesn't want his son go. He loves his son so much that he doesn't want him to go. Well, I can't imagine many parents, even in Canada, if their 15-year-old son was like, I want to move to China. I'm doing it. You'd be hard-pressed to find a single parent in the world who would be... Yeah, yeah, just go. Oh, yeah, fly off to the other side of the world by yourself, you know. So it's good that you have that empathy for your father and you recognize that. I absolutely do. And that's uh, so it's good to know that Amir has that empathy for 
not just my dad. I have it for a lot of people. So my dad is saying, give me the passport. And I'm like, I just arrived. I just stepped off the bus. And from a journey like that, people greet their guests and they welcome them. They give them hugs and kisses and shit like that. And you're giving me shit like this. And you're giving me shit like this. The first thing that you tell me is like, where is your passport? You made it back. Now he, he can't accept that you will be leaving soon with that passport. But day ends and the next day, mom and dad having conversations with me. My dad's buddy coming back to our place. We talking about it. My dad's buddy is like, you know what? We should. Amir, can you get out of the room? I'm like, okay, I leave the room, apparently. And um, I am listening, eavesdropping. And uh, he's saying that, you know, there are ways we can deal with this. We can find a good country. We can find people there. He really loves to go and we should facilitate this. My dad's like, you don't understand. You don't have kids. You are not a father. How can I do this? What if something happens to him? And he's right. Uh, my dad is having predictions that none of those people in that room have. And those predictions are about to happen. Eventually, I, I came back and I sat down. I'm like, Dad, there is only two options. I'm going to go or I'm going to go. One, I will go without you even noticing you wake up in the morning and I'm not there. Number two is you farewell me and we'll leave in good terms. And the second option happened. They weren't for it. They weren't happy about it. They just let it happen. Found a buddy of a friend, a family friends of a buddy of a friend who had a son, lived in Malaysia, got in contact with him who basically did nothing for me. Except telling my parents like, oh, for sure, I'll meet him in the airport. I'll get him. I'll set him with everything. He didn't meet me in the airport. He didn't help me with nothing. He just came and picked me up in, in my hotel one night and then uh, bought me chicken wings. <laughs> what more help do you need, Amir? Oh, well, he did help in one way. He helped your parents worry a little bit less. So maybe for your parents' mental health. It was yeah, kind definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I absolutely appreciate his, um, his fake support because it did let my parents feel safer to let me go and convincing. So, um, yeah, I packed my stuff and I am about 15 and a half, 16 ish, and I'm ready to leave. I get in the car. We have an entire family of 20, 25 people very Persian, accompanying me to the airport and farewelling me. Oh, my God. Okay, so this wasn't some secret, fly, like, leave in the night kind of thing. You no. had a whole parade. I had a whole parade, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, there's a very sad part in here. Uh, one of the persons in here is my dad's cousin's daughter. Uh, she's about five years old at a time. Tina, I will never forget her name. Tina loves me so much and she's so young to understand what's happening and like the airport somebody's leaving she doesn't 
he doesn't comprehend that information. So my first time being in the airport, my first time ever wanting to get on a plane, checked in my bag and got stamped on my passport. I was like nervous. Are they going to let me leave or not? They let me. And I was so excited and was so uh, tunnel vision in there that I didn't realize that I may need to go back. And I said, so can I go and I, I'm just going to go and say goodbye to my parents and family. They're like, no, you can't. I said, what? He's like, yeah, when your passport gets stamped, you can't go back. First time on a plane. Hard lesson learned. Like, well, fuck. And I am so excited and I am so uh, numbed that I just go sit there and I'm just thinking about when is the plane going to leave? I just want to leave. And uh, I, they called us over, get on the plane, and I can hear my name being uh, called on the pager. I was like, well, fuck. I knew it. I knew it that I can get out of this country. And they called me over and then she's like, hey, um, your mother seems to be very distressed. Like, what happened? Do you know? I'm like, yeah, I couldn't say goodbye to them. They said I've stamped my passport and I can't go back. So I'm speaking to this woman. She looks over her shoulder here and there. She's like, come on in, come on in. She brings me to this like tight corner and then she pull, closes the curtain and she flips her phone out and she says, dial it. I dial my mom's phone number and she picks up and no one's talking. I, I can just hear people crying and I can hear a kid in the background that is screaming, Amir, 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 where is he? Where is he? Amir. And that's Tina. My mom's like, take care of yourself, okay? I say, okay, mom, bye. And uh, I hang up and that's that was the last time I saw my parents, 12 years ago. So that's quite an emotional way to leave. Very emotional, yeah. How did you feel on the plane? So a story gets interesting quite. Um, so on the plane, I meet a couple of people. We talk, chit chat. Destination is Malaysia, by the way. And uh, I am quite distracted because I can see women removing their hijab, removing their clothing. They're getting more naked. Uh, they're removing all their um restrictions that they had in Iran once they leave the Iranian airspace scarves are being getting removed <laughs> jackets are getting removed yeah, it's pretty warm in Malaysia you know <laughs> oh yeah you know because hijab is mandatory in Iran and these women want to have the freedom the moment the plane leaves the airspace they are just like there's no authority to stop us in here so they start removing all of that and I'm like Oh my God, already things are changing. How is it going to be when we get there? It's an entire new world to me. Uh, we arrive in Malaysia. I go ahead and had to fill up this white piece of card that you put your information to declare if you have money or livestock or shit like that. And then my password gets stamped. And the airport looks so different. People are wearing shorts in the airport. People are not 
having head scars and there's like different people, Asian people, there's white people, there is Indian people, then there is African people. There are people from all over the world. And Malaysia is one of the most touristic places in Southeast Asia. They have like, they pretty much get the same amount of tourists as, as their own population every year. So they have like about 26 million, maybe 36 now, if I'm not mistaken. And they get the same amount of millions every year as tourists. People come from all over the planet and you can see colorful, different people, different looks, different cultures and different outfit. Not only that, but it's a completely different ecosystem. It's a completely different ecosystem. Like when I remember when we were when we were about to land, I was like, holy fuck, like this is all green, like and so different. I was like, this is magic land. This is like Jurassic Park shit. And uh, it was so new and different to me. I remember when doors opened in the airport, I had this like huge heat wave slapping me in the face. And this smell, this very strong smell of something, some sort of plant or something, uh, which caused, the, it was the beginning of my allergies in there. My body was like, what the fuck is happening? This country smelled different. And I believe every country has its own smell. And Malaysia has its the strongest, different, most amazing smell that I've, I can't even say amazing, was a unique smell of this country. And it's also wrapped up in your own, like, you know, you did it. And I'm like, I did it. So your association of the smell of Malaysia must be very, uh, you know, combined with a, a, a strong sense of success. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and I, I can't believe it. I am just so stoked. I am so um, amazed by everything. And everyone is, everyone on that bus is talking about this smell can you can you feel it too i'm like yeah i can feel it I'm like can you feel it too can you feel it so you arrive to malaysia but then you don't speak malay you only speak farsi and your five english words at this point yeah. right you have your friend with fried chicken who didn't really help very much uh how did you survive at 15 years old in a brand new country uh, i met some people and that was good i went down to the lobby I made a couple of friends and I speak zero English. This other guy tried to teach me some. He gave up. So slowly, slowly here and there with this guy, he said, I want to go and visit this English college. He took me to this English college that he wanted to register. Uh, we met people there. I, I listen a lot when I don't speak the language so I can pick up words. And I started picking up English words here and there and I started learning. And the journey began right there. I called my parents maybe three, four days after. I said, yeah, it's great in here. My view is beautiful. I wish I could send you photos. And uh, I am staying. And that's when the journey began. And I stayed in Malaysia for five years. So because of the fact that, you know, 
one of the only reasons you ended up in Malaysia was because of the visas. It's one of the only places that Iranian nationals can go visit. And because of that, I've read that there's a large uh, Iranian diaspora there. Did you end up kind of integrating with a community of Iranians over there? Or were you mostly kind of doing your own thing? It's a very true thing that you learn, you read about there. Um, because, exactly, because it's one of the countries that you can easily get an on arrival visa for three months. Um, I, I think they have reduced it now, or they may have even removed it. But uh, because of the relationship with Iran and Malaysia, uh, they allowed this three months of an arrival. You could stay there for three months, and then you could change that visa into a student pass or anything. A lot of Iranians came there. Um, later on in my journey, I meet this person who's been living in there for about well over four or five years. And she helps me to find a place. She lead, she gives me a little bit of lead here and there. It's a friend of my mom's friend's family. She tells me that I, I would like to tell you something about Iranians. And she's, she's much older than me. She's in her 60s and 70s. And she says... I've lived overseas for a very long time. I've my some of my kids were born here and there in Dubai and Malaysia and I've lived on my own without a husband or without my husband's presence for most of the time. And she was very wise and she was pretty experienced and she said I would really suggest you to stay away from Iranian community. Later on I learned Malaysia, because it's one of the only countries that you could easily get a visa, and also um, uh, crystal meth was 300 times more expensive than it was in Iran. Um, Iranians, a lot of them got into the business. They smuggled a lot of it in there, and uh, they got involved in a lot of crimes, and a lot of shit was going on. And you were very likely to bump into those people just because that's that's how it worked in there and also because people there are a lot of people who didn't want to go back there were no means of earning an income there are so much frauds and people will scam you or uh, there were so many fraud cases so she could only say one thing just stay away from them go to it whatever community that you want I mean, there are a lot of communities out there that I shouldn't never go around, but I'm telling you, stay away from the Iranian community. And listen. We talked earlier about there's this this thing I've noticed. Uh, I've interviewed one Iranian before, a musician called King Ram, who has an album called Songs for Wolves and self-referred to the sort of Iranian identity as as wolves. And you said that earlier as we were walking back from the diner, that there's this this, this self-identifying uh, trope of I Iranians referring <laughs> to themselves as wolves. And I, I thought maybe we could we could digest that yeah, a little bit. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Where does that come from? Well, it's funny that like even till today I thought that's like a very global thing, but apparently it's not. It's it's mostly coming from Persians. 
Canadians do not think of themselves <laughs> as wolves. Well, Canadians are so nice. That's why no yeah. Canadian wants to be a wolf. Uh, um, I mean, I mean, some you know retired middle aged guy with a gut probably does. Oh yeah. In sure. a world of sheep, I am the wolf. I I get it now. That's still that's totally fair. Uh, the whole concept and the whole culture of being a wolf came from. Well, pretty much post-revolution, country turned into a shit piece and uh, a lot of things changed and people literally basically had to fend for themselves before the government comes into place and so much that they had to change and so much wasn't taken care of. It's just a mess all over the place. So you basically had to fend for yourself and that whole concept became from... I mean, wolves are not the apex. They are they are not really top of the food chain in in the entire create creation of planet Earth. But wolves are known for being somewhere in there and top of the most most creatures out there. Even when it comes to humans, when they are packed, they will rip apart you know couples and strong people out there. Uh, but so the whole idea of being a wolf and not being a sheep, I I believe that's very global. Like sheeps don't really have their guards up. They're just out there munching on the grass. There are some happy sheeps that had probably smoked some weed right there and there as well. But this is starting to sound a lot like Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, they're quite just, a coddled country in a lot right? of ways. They're they're just chilling in there and they're happy. And then the wolves come and rip shit apart. Whereas wolves, they have to survive in winter. And so being a wolf is pretty much you having your guard up 24-7 out there fending for yourself. Having been into brawls and fights and, you know bad experiences so you have experienced being a wolf as someone who's been able to fend himself out there and i think i believe it's a good thing for me personally experiencing that because i've had some so-called shitty times here in canada that my friends and some distant family members are like quite concerned but and they broke down in tears when that thing, particular thing happened to me. But then after a while, they're like, oh, Amir, you've experienced way harsher than this. This is nothing. You're going to survive out of it. I'm like, absolutely. Whereas that particular problem or an incident would have been a disaster for this someone who was a born raised Canadian, never experienced anything outside of his life overseas. So... If that explains what is the concept of wolf, it's got nothing to do with a nationalistic Persian or, and there are wolves out there. Maybe you get called a politician's wolf. <laughs> well, I certainly think, yeah, there's definitely a gradient of trauma and being on the kind of more well shaded end of that spectrum has probably served a lot of people such as yourself well on your journey. And uh, this is only part one of what we're going to talk about. And as, as the audience will hear, you've been through a lot of shit. <laughs> um, but to bring it back into... It's just the beginning, my friend. It's uh, just the tip of the iceberg. 
So you've been warned to stay away from the wolves. What was your relationship with with the kind of greater Malaysian society? Were did, were people very welcoming of, you know, a young man living in their country doesn't speak the language? What was your what was your experience on on that front? I have been in crazy places in Malaysia. I have been beaten up. I have lost three of my front teeth in Malaysia. Um, getting beaten up by Malaysians. I have been in Malaysian prison. I love Malaysia and I love Malaysians despite all of that. Because shitty and bad people are all over the world in any country but if you look in a broader view and like come to a conclusion i have had the best food experience in malaysia i have had the best drunk experience in malaysia i have had the best party experience in malaysia I've had the best friendship experience in Malaysia. I've had some of the best religious experiences in Malaysia. I've had the best political experiences in Malaysia. And I have experienced the best sex in my life in Malaysia. Well, yeah, you were coming from and, and at a very specific age in your life. You were like 16 when you left, like or mid, mid-teens when you left. And there for five years on your own, that's got to be your memories of this place must be so wrapped up in just this sense of like self-discovery and the freedom to finally do what you wanted to do, which you must have felt very restricted back home. And now suddenly it's the Amir show. <laughs> it's the Amir's show. I could do whatever the fuck I want. Mm hmm. And uh, yes, that's correct. Did you uh, ever get tempted to maybe get married to secure your citizenship or anything like that? That's a very great question. I really appreciate it. About, let's say Canadian, about two <laughs> years into my in my uh, journey in Malaysia, I met this beautiful, young, amazing woman. We met, we were in a relationship for two years. She learned Persian like never I have ever seen anyone speaking or learning the language like that. She was so passionate. Although she didn't teach me any Chinese because she was worried that I will go and pick up other Chinese women. Um, she, she learned Persian. She learned how to cook Persian food. Not that I ever intended to teach her anything. She listened and she got in, involved with the culture. And our fantasy was to have kids, mix kids, and send them to Chinese school so that they can learn Mandarin. Their mother speaks Hokkien. Their dad speaks Persian. You're taught in Malayan school no matter what. And English is a language that's spoken all over the country. So our kids would have been multilinguists, just like that. 
and uh, we 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 were so excited about it. We wanted to do it. I never intended to marry someone because of the status. I don't. I will not be able to sleep well at night. Things didn't work out well, mostly because of me. I would like to say, um, I said that I am not very. I'm not in a position that I have a lot of security right now. I didn't even have a secure job or even my visa status was up in the air, which we will get into later on. And I didn't want to ruin someone else's life. My life was evolving. My life still to till this date is evolving, but not as crazy as then. Um, and I, I, I would have felt very guilty to involve someone in my life with no securities and no clear vision and that was sad because we loved each other a lot we were so passionate about we both loved kids having kids and mixed kids and getting them involved into five six ten different languages and people around us loved this whole idea and they thought we were a perfect match but Sometimes things doesn't work. You're just going to move on. And I said, this is not fair. So I had to say, I am sorry. It was mutual. She she agreed as well. So, Do you still talk to her at all? No. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Uh, I decided to not. Because I know that she's married now. She's got, she has a husband. She's in Singapore. I have heard from the grapevine. And uh, I decided that it's good for it's. We had great experiences, but I don't know. I had a feeling. My intuitions told me that I should let her live her life and me live my life. Being an extroverted person, one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is sometimes the best conversation is one that doesn't happen. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, you went to Malay prison. Can we talk about that? I met I met this guy who was doing some sort of business at the time. I thought I did have a little bit of suspicions that he's doing some shady stuff. Then he explained and then he showed me some whatever documents that was like, okay, this is not shady. He's just doing some work actually. Um we ended up um, moving into his place with his girlfriend, so we we rented a huge house. They call they call them bungalows in there, and uh, it had so many bedrooms. I think there's like six, seven bedrooms for three of us. And then there was some shady stuff going on with him and the woman. The woman was Malay and because Malays are, when it comes to sexual intimacy and relationships, things get a little bit sensitive and touchy in Malaysia, especially if you're not from there and if you're not Muslim. Uh, they're sensitive about it because it's part of the religion that you have to be married before having sex. If you have sex and you're not married, the Islamic law applies to you and you could be in trouble. But one thing I learned in Malaysia is that it's not a problem until somebody calls it in. As we say in here, it's not a problem until it's a problem. There, it's not a problem at all until somebody calls it in for 
99% of cases, doesn't matter what it is. Um, so uh, we lived there and this woman had some other relationship with someone else. He wasn't happy about it. They had separated. I don't know if it was a husband or they were engaged or whatever. This husband was trying to retaliate. He called us in and he said, there's this guy who's from not here and there's this other guy who is also not from here. This guy is probably Muslim, but the other one is not Muslim. So there's a non-Muslim uh, having sex with this with woman. With my wife. With my wife. And he had Ooh. buddies in the police station. So, yeah, they raided our house and we were arrested. I was arrested. He was arrested. And the reason they arrested me and him was not because of the, the whole relationship. Because the Islamic police, they do not need a warrant. They came in the house. They just say, Salam Alaikum, and they walk into your house. Uh, that's the amount of power they have. They came in. They checked everything. This girl was very smart. She had her clothing separated. She had everything in a different bedroom. So they saw this as a roommate kind of situation which we were roommates pretty much. I don't know what their relationship was going on. There's this guy who was trying to say this person is dating this woman and my wife or whatever, but everything was separated. So they couldn't find any grounds in there. And they turned and said, ah, oh, where is your passport? I was like, well, fuck. I mean, not really fuck because my passport was in immigration and I had a letter from immigration to say that here is my they didn't accept that letter. They said, we have to go to police station and check it online. And they did that. They said, our system is down. You have to stay with us. In Malaysia, when you get arrested, the law is 14 days. So you have to stay in for 14 days until you get processed. And then if everything is okay, you're gonna let, they're going to let you go in 14 days. If not, they will send you to court. And then they will deport you. I dodged a very, very big bullet in there because that was a point that I had received some updates from back home that shit's being stirred and uh, things are getting bad and I shouldn't be going back. And I was very lucky that somehow magically they fixed my problem and my passport came after a week, but they still kept me for another week and then they let me go. But the other buddy of mine, he got deported back to his country. Where was he from? He was from India. Mm. And we, um, we, we part ways. I came out of prison, called my parents. My mom cried. She freaked. She had freaked out. She was like, I don't know where you are. She was very scared. Uh, Iranian embassy had given zero fucks in terms of going and seeing where I am, what happened to me. And yeah, uh, it was bad. 14 days, that prison was bad. It was really bad. We slept on concrete for pretty much the whole time. Um, there was no drinking water. There was this water tap that had this yellow swearage looking like water that we fed ourselves off of it. Uh, toilet seat was like one of those uh, Scott, 
squatting, squatting, yeah, a squatting, hole on the ground. yeah, hole on the ground, squatting toilets right beside our head. No like, privacy. Like right beside our head where we slept. That was it. And then at night, this huge American cockroaches will come out over your face. And it was really bad, man. It was, it was horrible. And yeah. How's your relationship with the other people in there? Were there some real scary types or was everyone trying to just make the best of it? So here's the interesting part of this prison experience. Right off the bat, anyone who got in the prison got beaten up. They would do crazy things. Like I remember this African guy who also got into prison. They're like, yeah, they burned my testicles with uh, lighter in the prison and I saw some horrible stuff. Like one night I woke up from this sound of makan makan in, in Malay means eat, eat. And I had this 16 year old kid sitting and this other dude had his penis in his mouth. I was going to kill the guy. I woke up and I was going to kill that guy. I like, I was blind and I was so furious and I was like, I'm going to kill this guy. He was beating this kid and he was shoving his penis in his mouth. My Indian buddy, he held my wrist and he whispered in my ear, sleep the fuck down or they're going to kill all of us in here if you touch this guy. So I had to shut my eyes and put my head on the concrete and sleep, pretend to be sleeping. I wasn't touched. No one even gave me a single stare or a look. I was curious. Why and why is this happening? When I came out of prison, one of my buddies who was involved in crystal meth and he was actually imprisoned and uh, he, he wasn't he wasn't my buddy after I found out about his whole a scandal and everything. But he told me that because they know Persian people who are in prison are most likely involved in methamphetamine. And they know that Persian people know that the penalty for getting arrested is a death penalty. Crystal meth no excuses, death penalty. And because of that, they think or they believe we are the bravest. We are zero fucks given. And if we get caught with methamphetamine, we know we will die. So we should be very brave and careless people. They don't mess with us. If they, if we don't care and we are, we are brave about that and we are careless about our own lives, what could we do to other people's lives? And uh, in the past, it had apparently some major fights had happened in prisons and people got slashed in throats and got beaten up really bad and killed by Persians who were in, in prisons who had methamphetamine charges. So the rumor was all over the country. If you ever see a Persian in prison, don't fuck with them. So I pretty much was safe because of that whole concept whereas i had nothing to do with meth 
It's so ironic that you've been warned by that that old family friend of yours, the, the older woman. And then in, in the end, it was that that wolf's reputation that ended up protecting you from what could have been otherwise a, a pretty I mean, it already it sounds like it was already pretty awful, but that could it could have been much worse. It definitely, no doubt. I I anything that you have on mind or anything that you think of there is no doubt about it i heard about i witnessed shitty things i had heard about worse than that in in prisons it happens especially when the prison is not filtered there were 15 14 16 years old in there there were 30s there are 40s there are 60s they're all mixed up until they go to the court and they have a decision didn't know that about the the drug laws in Malaysia as well. Is that specifically for meth and hard drugs, or would that extend as well to like cannabis and mushrooms and things like that? I mean, nowadays a lot of countries that they are taking it a little slow on cannabis, but drugs in Malaysia, any uh, controlled substance, is death penalty when it comes to someone who's involved into importing or exporting it yeah trafficking or trafficking or even i i had seen methamphetamine labs exploding in apartment buildings that persians had set up and some of them died they were very lucky that they died the rest of them they got death sentence and that sentence in Malaysia is very brutal. Uh, in some cases, they just starve you into death. And you, you have a very hard time until your death sentence comes in the prison. So better to die in a meth explosion. Oh, for sure. You make sure you, you don't have an explosion in there. Or if you have an explosion, you're going with it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So... Why did you end up leaving? So, um, I, I had a great time in Malaysia. I, as you mentioned, all of the stuff, I did it. Uh, I, I lost my virginity in Malaysia. <laughs> I, I had, I, I got drunk. For not in prison. Not in prison. No, 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 not in prison. Fuck no. <laughs> I, I got drunk in Malaysia for the first time in my life. I, I partied hard. Uh, I partied so hard that when I was 17, I was over it. In Malaysia, I was like 17. I was like, I'm over it. I'm done. I have had enough. Um, five Around five years time in Malaysia, uh, I, I, was, I ran out of visa and they weren't extending my visa. Uh, things are getting shitty back home. I can't go back home. And shit's hitting the fence, like here and there. I'm getting messages. I'm getting threats. And I know I have destroyed all the bridges into ashes, set aside just breaking them. And back to, uh, Iran. Back to Iran. What would have happened if you tried to go back to you? I probably died. I would have probably been killed. Because you'd um, overstayed your visa? I had. No, because I had... I had been involved into some political arguments and I had stirred some religious conflicts in there. 
which was not in favor of anyone around me. And uh, I had, because I had left, people were convinced now that I had done something. So the people who were looking for me and who were curious about it were now convinced that, fuck, it's been five years. He's, you know, so they had come to points of looking for me and may, wanting to know where I am, finding about my whereabouts and also no wanting to know when I go back. So I'm I gathering this, all these intel, intelligent informations that I get from here and there. And I know that I should never go back regardless of what the circumstances are. Survived the prison, came out of it, didn't get deported. Now I need to plan for the next move. Um, there's no back. There's no back. There's only forward. Forget about your home country. There is no home country for you. And so I am at this stage that I know that I can't go back and I can't stay in Malaysia as well. Uh, the relationship that was supposed to go into marriage didn't work out. So no kids that are going to be multilingual, multilinguists. I uh, can't go back home. Where am I going to go? I don't know about it. But um, I had my passport for sent to immigration for visa. And uh, when it came back, I was overstayed six months in that passport. They said, sorry, we couldn't get a visa for you. And you are overstayed six months. You know, you have to go and sort it out yourself. I was like, well, fuck. I am in deep shit right now. I will get imprisoned before getting deported to Iran. And when I get deported, I'll be fucking dead. So um, I have to get uh, in touch with my contacts. And I do a little bit of research. And I now know that I am pretty much a refugee. I can't go back to my country. Uh, there is no, no place for me to stay here. And I need a safe place. I looked up on the internet after doing weeks and months of research. I found out there is this uh, treaty signed uh, that is called the 1951 or 53 convention by UNHCR that was established after World War II uh, or during World War II for refugees and uh that is made for Europeans who were displaced or did not have a country to have a safe place. And that is still a thing today. So you could seek asylum in a country that is signatory to that treaty, which Malaysia, Malaysia wasn't, and they won't deport you back to your country. They'll give you protection and potentially and eventually citizenship. And I found that Australia is the closest one to me. I get in contact with my my sources that I have and I prepare myself to head to Australia. What was your method of travel to get there? Well, um, at first I had to book a ticket to get to Indonesia because the boats will depart from Indonesia. And then uh, from Indonesia, the the person who connected me to this smuggler, he arranged a boat that's what we, we know as far as we know at the time is like, yeah, you're going to be on a boat. I'm like, how does it work? You're getting visa for us. And like, we like, how does it work? He's like, 
are you kidding? We're going to be smuggling you into Australia. There's no visa or passport or shit. And I say, oh my God, like, I don't get it. And he's like, I just, okay, don't worry about it. Just give me your 10 grand money and then we'll take care of it. So, Sounds legit. Yeah, sounds very legit, right? 10 grand in there. 10 grand, a boat. Yeah, a boat. Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Yeah. Are you kidding? No visa. How did you get into contact with this person? Um, I it's a long story. It goes and relates back to the guy who uh, was arrested in meth methamphetamine. He was right. one of the big dogs, big importers. He uh, that I found out later on when he did that. I didn't know that he's in meth business and he's a smuggler. He he was a printer cartridge businessman, and then he said he knew some people and. When it comes to seeking asylum and getting into safety, you don't care where the source is and where it comes from. So I knew there is this guy who knows some people and I got in contact with him. He found the way and he told me, go to this place. This is a phone number. Call them. Send me the money. And I have no other ways rather than trusting. There's no other ways. Trust this person. Give the money to them and go. Just go. So how did you come up with 10 grand to pay this guy? Well, I, I, I actually called this guy and I say, hey, I'm in a shitty position. I need to leave the country and I can't go back to Iran. That's, I assume, you know, he's like, no, I don't assume that you can. I'm like, I'm telling you now. And where, where can you send me? He's like, well, Australia, of course, is the closest one. And I said, okay, then sure let's do it. he's like how much money do you have i'm like i have nothing he's like well nothing's not gonna do anything you need 10 grand i'm like well good luck with that um i thought you you said you're my brother it's like yeah but i have to pay people i said dude i need to get out of this place i am a dead man and he's like well how much you just send me whatever just tell me what i'm like I've got a motorcycle that I can sell for maybe less than a grand, not even a grand. And I have some savings. I've squeezed my entire life. I may have two or three. It's like, okay, just send me. Just send me whatever that is and I'll, I'll, I'll see. And then here and there, I gathered some money and I I think I was able to give him like six, seven grand. And then he's like, six is better than nothing. So this was really hooked up by your associate. My associate. The who printing is, cartridge the, the, guy. The, 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 the cartridge businessman. Business the, the, is booming. The printing machine cartridge man. And uh, yeah, I'm sure he put some money from himself, but... Actually, maybe not. You see, the smuggling business is a very, very nasty business. And these people, like there's so many middlemen in here. There are so many people that, like that boat itself is cost like what? Two grand. And they put like 100, from 100 to 300 people sometimes on that boat. And all those people have paid like 10 grand, 7 grand. This is a very cost effective for the smugglers. Very cost effective. There's a lot of revenue. That's why 
and they don't pay taxes, that's the only reason probably the government doesn't like it. And this uh, is a lot of trust that you're putting in these these people. Well, there's there's there you can't do anything else. There's there's, no there's not much you can do. What kind of vibe did you get off of them when you met them? Did you get the feeling that they cared at all about Zero your well-being? Zero fucks given, trash, steal, stealers, smugglers, thieves. Mm. Uh, upon arrival, they're like, you put your luggage in here and you leave to the safe house. You can't take anything with you. It's risky. Why? Because they want to go over all your property and see what goodies you have in there. They'll take and trash all of it. And you have to give us a grand right now or you're leaving the country. I'm like, I don't have a grand. They pulled a pistol on some some guy in there. Like, I'll kill you and toss you in this heavy river. I'll take you down thousands of kilometers. No one will find your body. Set aside us getting charged. There is no laws in here. This is Yahoo country. This is no regulations. He's like, no problem here. A grand and my property. No problem. I'll leave it here. And he did. Um, Women, children got lost in there. They ended up in prison for years. They got killed. They got raped. Um, they starved. They had to steal from shops to survive. They had to prostitute themselves, their kids to survive. Horrible things happened in Indonesia and even in Malaysia. And crazy, crazy, crazy things happens in there that I'm saying me as a Canadian... I am so spoiled and privileged that now I don't even think about those. But it happens today. It still happens. And we don't see it. Like, I don't see it because I am in Vancouver in a basement suite that I have my running water and I have my 9 to 5 and I have my car and I have my insurance, dental care, Pharma care, we are fighting for it now. We are fighting for dental care as well because our teeth needs to look whiter when we go on a date. And yet there are people out there that have to walk for miles to get their hands on a muddy water to drink water. Food, forget about it for weeks, buddy. So speaking about the people that you were being smuggled with, did you get the chance to really hear some of their stories or were you encouraged to not talk or yeah we we pretty much shared all our stories uh mostly people who have converted to christianity that's that's the main uh refugee uh, case or your asylum case that i heard i came across uh there are lgbtiq folks in there that they are getting persecuted because of who they are and religious per, uh, persecution, political persecutions, students who would raise their concerns and their values and their point of views in their schools and universities, and they got thrown in jail, they got suspended from universities, they were abandoned, they were threatened, their family was threatened, people who went missing after attending house-based churches uh, their friends went missing, their friends got killed, and their family or their loved ones got missing and abducted. You name it. We were put on these vans 
Um, we circled around the country for about 18, 20 hours. God knows where we are going. I have no clue. And after 18, 20 hours, uh, we are all gathering up by, by this secluded, dark, secret beach. Sky is beautiful. The night sky is amazing. It's like maybe 2 a.m. in the morning. That's where the next journey, the big move starts. So after everything that you, you went through between that moment on the beach waiting for the boat and now, do you ever wish that you stayed in Iran? Never. I do not regret a single minute of my journey. All right, everyone. That's the end of part one. In light of the length and breadth of Amir's story, we both figured that would probably be smarter to split it up into two parts. So you're going to be able to go ahead and listen to part two, hopefully by mid-November at the latest. If you want to keep up with Amir, his Twitter handle is Taginia Amir. That's T-A-G-H-I-N-I-A-A-M-I-R on Twitter. I'll also leave a link to his page at the landing page for this episode at eastfandelsewhere.com. If you wanted to keep up with me, you can do that by checking out the back catalog of Elsewhere. You can also check out my side project, Pylon Radio, which is a more casual, music-centered show. Uh, that's also on Co-op Radio every Thursday at 100.5 FM in Vancouver. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram at eastvan to elsewhere And if you're enjoying the show, why don't you go ahead and tell your friend about our show? Or better yet, leave a review wherever you're listening to us. Stuff like that is basically the only way that new projects such as this can break through, touch the stars, maybe even touch a few hearts along the way. My name's Ian Ditchburn. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. And we'll talk again soon.